Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Andreas Stino. He is the founder of Stino Research, which is an independent research firm providing macroeconomic analysis. Andreas is also the former global chief strategist at Nordia Bank, which is one of Northern Europe's largest banks. In this episode, Andreas explains why he thinks the Fed's next move is likely a rate hike not a cut. He explains that they will likely hike rates because of a resurgence in inflation. Now, this is counter to the existing narrative out there that many are expecting rate cuts this year. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andreas. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Andreas Stino, founder of Stino Research. It is great to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Andreas. Thanks for having me, Julia. Well, I'm excited to have you on. And Andreas, I want to start where I always start with my guest, and that is to get their you know, big picture macro view, the framework in which they're looking at the world at today. And one of the things about this show, Andreas, is you can take all the time you need to set the stage when it comes to the macro view. Let's start there. Yeah. I mean, it's been one hell of a ride over the past six weeks here in 2024. When we entered this year, I guess everyone and their mother expected inflation to wane. Uh, they expected interest rates to come down. And here we are like six, seven weeks later with a resurgence of inflation pressures in the US. We also see early signs of the same across various European economies. And I frankly find it very hard to find a forward-looking indicator on inflation pointing south right now. So. What's changed in a matter of a couple of months? Well, I think wealth effects are back as a major theme for labor markets. Um, I think the St. Louis Fed produces a, an interesting statistic on early retirements in the, the U.S. economy, and they recently updated the numbers for the fourth quarter of 23. And we're basically back at trends that we saw in 2021 and 2022 with a truckload of people leaving the workforce due to strong wealth effects, basically due to strong equity markets, strong crypto markets again, right? So we're stuck in a situation where the labor scarcity is back as a major theme and is currently driving inflation trends um, at the worst possible timing for a lot of the global central banks already in a rate cutting mode, um, maybe too early. Got it. I want to hear more on that because, okay, so if uh, the indicators specifically, you're saying that you can't find a single one that's pointing south. Walk me through the indicators that you're looking at. Just want to hear more on this picture about the inflation resurgence. Yeah. So first of all, I'm very focused on the wage component of inflation right now. Uh, given the labor scarcity and given the lack of qualified labor uh, to to match the the openings that we see both in the U.S. economy and in the uh, European economy, when we ask small and medium-sized companies, both in the U.S. and in Europe, they're now telling us that they expect to hike wages over the next couple of quarters. And I specifically refer to the so-called NFIB survey in the U.S. It's a survey conducted among mostly SMEs, uh, 80% roughly in the service sector. Um, and they're telling us that compensation plans are on the rise. Uh, and remember that we're currently uh, stopped with roughly 5% annualized wage growth. And we see an acceleration from that already elevated level 
in wage growth um, as a consequence of, of, of this hike in compensation plans in the survey. So I guess this is a result of um, business owners, C-level uh, uh, managers, expecting wage pressures to increase uh, when they um, when they deal with negotiations uh, over the past uh, or over the next couple of quarters. And it's kind of the similar picture we see in Europe, just with a slightly smaller volume, I'd say. Um, when we ask small and medium-sized companies within the service sector in Europe, they're also struggling uh, with, with the wage component right now. And they're struggling uh, with recruiting cheap labor from, from Eastern Europe, which they've been used to. So again, here we have a scarcity issue uh, and we have a situation where the bargaining power is firmly uh, in, in favor of the one asking for a job. Mm. And I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, I imagine the wage side of things, I imagine that's probably stickier, isn't it? Yeah, it typically is. Um, and it, it typically takes a while from the point where you see an actual um, deflation or disinflation of the economy before you can actually see it in wage data. The interesting thing right now is that wages seem to be accelerating at a point in time where inflation, at least the measured inflation, has been falling in yearly terms for a couple of quarters at least uh, on a trend basis. So this is an interesting new dynamic, which we haven't seen for quite a while. We've been used to, to cheap labor. Um, and after the pandemic, the cheap labor is not there anymore. Mm, yeah. Let me, one more follow on, though, on the labor side. What do you make of like the recent wave of layoffs? I feel like the first six weeks of the year, it was like every week some big company, a big corporation, big tech company announcing like, you know, pretty sizable layoffs. How do you think about that side of things? If, if we look at, for example, the Challenger data, uh, it's released on a monthly basis, trying to sort of uh, create an aggregate picture of, of the layoff announcements. We've seen a pickup for sure. I, I agree with that. We're still talking about relatively muted levels compared to recessionary uh, periods in the U.S. economy. Uh, so, of course, it's a trend that we need to monitor. Uh, but to me, it looks kind of reminiscent of the layoff trends that we saw in big tech towards the end of 22. It wasn't really something that overall altered the, the picture in, in the U.S. Uh, labor market. We saw pockets of weakness. Uh, we'll continue to see pockets of weakness. My main thesis has been that this labor market weakness kind of moves from sector to sector to sector, but without it sort of hitting the overall uh, labor market conditions at the same time. Hey there, I hope that you are enjoying listening to this episode. If you can, please take a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you could leave us a rating and a review, it would help us so much in continuing to grow the show and bringing some incredible guests for these longer form discussions. Thank you so much for your support. And I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. All right. So resurgence, resurgence inflation. What does this mean for the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy? How do you think this factors in? Because I know a lot of folks had been expecting rate cuts. I know it looks like there's not a rate cut coming in March. I've had a lot of conversations on this show. They said June at the earliest is what I'm hearing from folks. How does this kind of factor into the interest rate policy from your viewpoint? I'm kind of tempted to say, given my forward-looking indicators on the Federal Reserve, that the next move is a hike. I know that's extremely yeah. contrarian to say right now. Um, but 
there's no cut scope to cut interest rates right now. Why, why should they cut interest rates if inflation accelerates from levels, say around three and a half to 4% on a trend basis? Um, it would be out of this world to do so. Uh, the question is whether they've cornered themselves to an extent where they cannot pivot again. Uh, and I hold some sympathy for that view, uh, which is why it will probably continue to be a market theme uh, of when rather than if um, on the first rate cut. But I don't see a need for rate cuts. Um, but is that the same as, as forecasting that the Federal Reserve will not cut rates this year? I kind of tempted to say so, but I'm not willing to, to ultimately bet on it. Um, because if you look at the political capital invested in this pivot from Powell late last year, um, first of all, he will look like a fool if he pivots again. And secondly, we know that we have the election data coming in late, uh, in late 2024, which makes it uh, extremely politically tricky to, to, to make another U-turn for the Federal Reserve. Uh, ultimately, it's probably the most palatable solution to just underpin the uh, acceleration of the U.S. economy here, even though uh, they're at risk of flaring up inflation again. I want to hear more on this at this is a bit contrarian, but the next move could be a hike. Can you unpack that for us? I am so curious. So my main thesis right now is that we haven't seen the peak in the Fed funds rate yet. Uh, the reason being that we're stuck with a macro cycle that uh, evolves in a much more positive way than uh, basically anyone dared to uh, envision for a couple of quarters ago. Uh, a couple of quarters ago. So. Point being here that if inflation does not drop to 2%, given the hiking cycle that we've been through, and if we actually see that reacceleration of inflation trends, which I find very likely here, uh, the Federal Reserve will have to turn around once again. Uh, the question is about timing now, uh, if these forward-looking indicators are right, uh, because inflation stuck at a plateau of say three to three and a half percent on a trend basis with accelerating dynamics beneath the surface. It doesn't really sound like a Federal Reserve policy that is tight enough to bring inflation back where it needs to be. Um, the question is whether they want to postpone this discussion until after the election. I find that likely uh, given the trickiness of, of, of you turning ahead of an election date, uh, but ultimately they will have to do so given the dynamics that we see in both the labor market and uh, in overall inflation trends. Yeah. What? Okay. So if we see another um, hike, what do you think the implications could be maybe for markets? <laughs> um, I mean, right now we're kind of riding a high in a sense uh, in, ac in asset markets. Um, we're stuck with the narrative that the next move will be a cut. We're stuck with the narrative that the Federal Reserve balance sheet policy will be much more benign. Um, we know that the Federal Reserve it's likely to take a decision um, sort of alleviating some of the pressures on the balance sheets from March and onwards. Um, they're likely going to taper the so-called QT process along the way. So they're not, no longer going to bring the balance sheet size down in the same pace. So everything points to a continued melt up in equity markets through this first half of the year. But I guess a day of reckoning will arrive once we reached the conclusion that it was a bad idea to make the pivot. Um, and the timing of that is, is still very tricky given how tricky it is to forecast when the Federal Reserve will actually acknowledge that inflation is, is reaccelerating beneath the surface. Uh, 
Um, so it's not something that's within what I call the tradable horizon here. The tradable horizon is one of strong equity markets, in my view, strong crypto markets due to liquidity additions, due to a benign narrative around how central banks will perceive this inflation wave. Uh, it will feel kind of reminiscent, reminiscent of 21, 22, until central banks actually have to acknowledge that this pivot was, pivot was too early again. Mm. I want to hear more. Can you explain that? Like that you're talking about like a tradable horizon um, reminiscent of 21, 22. Can you just elaborate a bit more there? Mm. So when I talk about a tradable horizon, um, I typically talk about the horizon, say, just in front of me, the next three to six months. Um, I always find it tricky to to forecast macro developments with, I say, two to three year horizon, uh, given how much uh, the... Uh, given how much volatility we've seen in the macro cycle, basically over the past uh, three to four years since the pandemic started, we've gone from one extreme on inflation to uh, the other extreme with six, nine month cycles. Uh, so what I can see right now in my forward looking indicators, when we ask companies for what's right ahead of them is an inflation spike, a reacceleration of inflation trends. And it seems very likely that the Federal Reserve will take a very hesitant stance towards actually acknowledging that uh, resurgence of inflation. And that feels kind of reminiscent of the first wave of inflation we saw through the pandemic to me. Uh, it took a long while before central banks actually acknowledged that something structural was at play. Um, they referred to various temporary measures. Uh, they referred to uh, short-term imbalances in the labor market, but it just seems like something has structurally changed here. Um, it was completely out of this world to think of a scenario with, say, 5 to 6% interest rates in the U.S. economy without something breaking ahead of 2020. But something has changed since the economy is not um, responding to that hiking cycle in, a, in the way that, it's, that it should. Yeah. Um, and that's probably due to labor markets changing for good for good is always um, a tricky phrase to use in macro, but at least something has changed relative to 2019, allowing uh, inflation to remain high despite high interest rates. That's interesting. When you say like something's changed for good, what is that exactly? Like, is, that, is that the higher, like the wages, that, that kind of situation or what, what do you think it is? I think the labor market has changed for good. Um, we've become accustomed to a scenario where uh, cheap labor was available both in Europe and in the U.S. Um, due to immigration. That is no longer as feasible a thesis as it was in 2019. We've seen a load of early retirements through 21, 22, um, and also partially 23 due to extremely strong wealth effects of all of the um, dollars and euros printed through the pandemic. Uh, if you owned a house, owned a crypto portfolio, owned a tech portfolio and equity space through those years, uh, you've essentially secured your, um, your, your life after retiring, right? Uh, and that's a major game changer to what we saw in uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, where we both had the access to cheap labor and we didn't have that wave of early retirements. So I guess the balance between supply and demand and labor uh, has, has, has shifted quite dramatically in favor of those um, basically wanting a job, right? 
So now I'm a business owner myself. I know, I know you are as well. Um, it, it's, it's a lot trickier to attract um, talent and you need to pay up to an extent that I haven't seen before. Uh, and it's, it's still on a, on, on a momentum basis, very, very hard to deal with. Going back to the, um, the likelihood of a Fed rate hike, I did see um, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers um, said that, you know, it would be more like a, the likelihood of is of a rate hike versus a cut. Um, I saw the headline. I, I didn't watch the interview or anything, but you're right. The narrative has been rate cuts this year. I want to hear more, just a bit more on, you know, maybe is it how would you put the probability of a rate hike? I know sometimes folks look at things as probabilities. What is the probability for you? And was there a moment where that shifted? Were you part of the cut camp earlier? Did that shift for you? Just kind of curious there. Yeah. So, I mean, admittedly, if we turn back time six or nine months, I was of the view that the inflation wave was over. Um, and I've been caught by surprise by the magnitude of the rebound in asset markets. Um, and I think it's been a major surprise to central banks as well. If you ask the Federal Reserve whether they forecasted such a move in asset markets after their sort of change of tune in, in Q4 last year, um, they will, they will probably admit that they've been caught by surprise as well. Uh, and this major move towards a reflation of crypto assets, uh, tech assets and all of that, it basically allows a lot of asset owners to, to take a decision to work less, even retire. Uh, and it's, it's been a major trend again towards the end of the year in 23. Uh, and when I saw that data coming out of the St. Louis Fed on early retirees uh, for Q4 last year, I think it annualizes at close to 4 million people. It's a lot. And, and you, uh, Basically, the Biden administration has responded to this by by opening the both border to the south. Um, I don't I don't know whether I don't know whether it's a politically palatable solution for them to continue to do that. Um, and if if you do not import cheap labor in a situation where the labor force shrinks, then you'll have to pay off for labor. Um, I, I I guess the hope for business owners here is that artificial intelligence will. Um, allow productivity to increase enough um, sort of counter these trends seen in the labor market. Uh, but for now, that's certainly not what we're seeing in forward-looking indicators. Even though productivity is doing fine, uh, we're still talking about wage growth that is far exceeding uh, the productivity growth. Um, and that's something that, tip, something that typically spilled spills over to weaker margins over time and all that for, for business owners. Uh, so I guess this short-term wave of positivity will come to an end. If I'm right, that we'll have to pay up for, for labor once again. Yeah. Well, we're here um, talking about the U.S., but I, I want to bring up Europe because I've actually had viewers, Andreas, request guests to just kind of fill them in on the macro situation, like the picture in Europe, what's going on. What can you tell us about the situation from where you sit? So I'm uh, based in Copenhagen, Denmark, so to the very north of, uh, of the European continent. And um, our big neighbor to the South, Germany, is still stuck in the abyss um, from a momentum perspective in, 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 in macro terms. The German economy suffers due to high production costs. And we're talking about high production costs, both due to labor uh, cost increases and due to the cost uh, of uh, producing energy in Germany. Um, 
And when you pair those two things, you basically have the cocktail for disaster for industrial production. Um, the typical industrial production company um, basically keeps the cost base very closely tied to wages and energy. Those are the two major components for them from, from, from a cost perspective. Uh, and they're struggling on both fronts. So when we look at industrial production in Germany, especially in energy sensitive sectors, we're talking about drawdown of 25 to 30% since the peak just before the pandemic. Uh, and it's, it's not really recovering. We've actually seen lower energy prices over the past couple of quarters, but we're still seeing very, very high increases in German wages. So the industrial production has moved elsewhere. Uh, that is the simple explanation behind the lack of growth in Germany. Uh, the German Bundesbank, the central bank in Germany, was out earlier this uh, this morning European time stating that the German economy is in a, if not severe recession, then at least a recession. Um, and I think that's crystal clear by now um, that the German economy is not growing. Uh, the German economy used to be the engine of Europe. Um, it no longer is. France is also struggling big time due to some of the same um, issues, high wage growth and high uh, growth in, in the cost base of, of everything energy related, while the Southern European economies are thriving. Um, it's, it's Europe upside down. I, I've been used to, through all my adulthood, uh, to a discussion of how to like transfer um, money from North to the South within the Eurozone. And we're now basically talking about an opposite picture. The Southern European economy is thriving due to tourism still being uh, at extremely elevated levels. Also tourism uh, or foreign arrivals from the US to a large degree and an industrial engine in France and Germany, which is broken. Uh, it's, it's, it's truly upside down. It's something I still need to sort of grasp, to be honest, um, living just north of Germany. Yeah. Okay. So like, because the, they, you're, you point out there, they've been, um, you know, economic engines, uh, certainly Germany, um, and then France also having some challenges. Can you kind of tease that out, like where you could see implications because of that, um, especially if they move production elsewhere? What could that mean for like a recovery story? Just curious there. Yeah. I think Germany... France and, and other industrial nations in Europe will struggle to regain momentum anytime soon. Um, even with a actually a landslide in energy costs, I know from elevated levels, uh, we're still seeing far from, from any decent momentum in industrial production in these countries. Um, so it seems like business owners uh, decision makers took the decision to leave Germany for good when they uh, changed their tune on on energy policies. Um, remember that Germany basically thrived from extremely cheap energy from Russia through a couple of decades. Um, I think it's relatively safe to say that Germany will not buy energy from Russia anytime soon again. Uh, so they've had to replace those energy sources and they've replaced them with extremely expensive energy sources. Uh, and that's something that you have to uh, take into account if you own a business in Germany. Why why not move to a, um, a legislation with a more business-friendly energy policy? 
why not move your production site to the US, for example, given the uh, tax incentives you're given by the Biden administration? Uh, I think we've seen a massive sequential move of production capacity from Germany to the US, to take an example. It's not necessarily moving uh, towards China and, and those regions. I think it's, it's, it's just as well moving towards the US. Yeah. What else, um, like, how should, what should U.S. investors pay attention to as it relates to Europe? Um, I imagine it just doesn't, I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough, at least not on my program. Is there anything else that we should be watching? So, I mean, if you're watching Europe from the outside, uh, I still kind of struggle to find pockets of value from an equity perspective, given this. Um, if you look at the German uh, equity index, it's actually trading at at, uh, at very elevated levels given the recession that, that Germany is already in. Uh, it's kind of the same story for France. While if you look for pockets of strength, uh, you should probably rather uh, look for such pockets in those economies um, that thrive when the service sector uh, is accelerating. Uh, we're talking about Spain, we're talking about uh, Italy, we're talking about Greece even, um, those economies have, have thrived through this uh, because of um, a very, very strong tendency uh, towards spending more on services relative to goods in Europe. Uh, so they're still seeing an influx of, uh, of tourists on a running basis. Uh, and when you have beaches and hotels and uh, beautiful nature, as, as for example, Italy and Greece, uh, just the perfect cocktail for 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 the local economy to to thrive. Um, so it is kind of the ups, upside down picture to what you've been told probably over the past couple of decades surrounding investments in Europe. Stay clear of Greece, stay clear of Italy, mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah. Um, it's 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 upside down now. Um, I mean, when you look for momentum in Europe, you you should look south. Look south. Yeah. Got it. All right. Um. So just zooming out again. Um. From your vantage point, uh, portfolio construction these days. It sounds like a lot of narratives have shifted, um, and that is very clear. How do you think about portfolio construction, especially? Like, it seems like narratives can shift relatively quickly, too. Yeah. So given the acceleration we see in inflation now, I think it's kind of safe to say that this whole 60-40 classic portfolio setup will be challenged again this year. Um, if anything, inflation uh, flaring up basically speaks in favor of adding to equity exposure and limiting your exposure to bonds. Um, and if you want a diversifier in your portfolio, um, you need something that uh, basically rhymes with inflation in your portfolio. And energy stocks, they tend to perform well when inflation is on the up. Uh, stocks within the industrial sector, um, materials, they also tend to, to pick up pace when the underlying reflation of the economy is, is ongoing. Uh, so I'm, I'm currently adding to my equity exposures in the US within the industrial sectors, within uh, materials, within energy. Um, and I'm kind of pairing that with a pretty bullish view on crypto and technology. So I, I take the best of both the good <laughs> old brown world, if I may, uh, and the new... Um, world of adventures within technology. Uh, I stay clear of bonds in this scenario since I struggle to see how they can perform with rising deficits, with inflation on the rise again, at least from a momentum perspective, and with 
a Federal Reserve sort of cornered um, in a rate-cutting narrative that they're sort of trying to backpedal from. Well, one more question on the Fed. Did the Fed make a mistake like by pausing their rate hiking cycle or where did, where did this kind of go awry from from the Fed point of view? So I given what we've seen in in US asset markets, I think it's kind of safe to say by now that it was too early to remove the hiking bias. So what they could have done was that they could have told us that they were on pause, but they had a lean towards hiking interest rates instead of cutting them. Uh, that major shift happened when they hinted in the dot plot that they planned on cutting interest rates in, in 24, right? Um, I don't think they sort of had the feeling um, with with the market narrative at the time because the positivity was all already brewing beneath the surface in, in, in the US asset market when they took that decision to communicate that 24 was likely a year of rate cuts. Um, and it is tricky to... to backtrack from such a stance now, especially since it was probably cleared with the Biden admin, right? So um, good luck trying to backpedal on that view, say two, three months ahead of an election date. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure Biden wants uh, the S&P 500 down to 3% a day in the months preceding that election. Well, Andreas, I really appreciate you taking the time. I want to give you the last few minutes. Let folks know where they can obviously follow you on social. You have a great Twitter presence. Um, read Stino Research. Anything you want to plug in. Also, any parting thoughts, anything that we didn't bring up in this conversation that you want to leave the audience to think about? Take the next few minutes to do so, please. Thanks, Julia. Um, you can visit StenoResearch.com. The name is up here on the screen. Um, we, uh, we do live portfolios across uh, assets. Uh, we, uh, we track the macro developments both in the US, but also in Asia and in, uh, in Europe. So we basically cover uh, the entire globe of, of asset markets. And one thing I could leave you with, Julia, um, is a few remarks on China. Uh, China has obviously been the problem child of the uh, global economy through last year. Um, we've been caught by surprise by the lack of momentum uh, in the Chinese economy quite a few times last year. But what I have to say here is that the issues that I talked about relating to a lack of labor in, uh, in Europe and in the US, they have that issue probably 10 times worse in China if you look at the demographic um, projections for China. Um, projections for the Chinese population size look absolutely abysmal. Uh, and they do compare with the post-1990 scenario in Japan. Uh, and if you want to um, sort of look up the roadmap for what's ahead for China, just look at what happened in Japan between, say, 1991 and uh, the mid-2000s. That's your roadmap, and it's not pretty. Wow. Okay. Uh, anything else that you want to add, though, to that? Like, it's, it's not, it sounds like that one, all right, China could be worse than everyone else. What what kind of, it could have some serious implications. What kind of implications are we talking about? So I think the interesting uh, spillover to discuss is whether that real estate crisis in China, which is still ongoing, could end up impacting the financial system in China to an extent that will actually lead to spillovers to the West. So far, they've just thrown money at the problem uh, in China. They've tried to contain the issues um, 
domestically. But ultimately, as soon as the banking system gets involved, uh, and we know every time there is a real estate crisis, the financial system is is the ultimate backholder. Um, so I'm watching out for observations from the Chinese financial system and whether they will have to publicly backstop uh, a couple of the big banks out there. If we get to that stage where they will have to inject liquidity into some of the state banks uh, in an attempt to contain the pressures um, from this real estate crisis, it's probably the point in time where you should start to worry about the, the consequences for the financial system in the West because we don't have really direct ties to the real estate market, but we we are interconnected with Chinese banks via a whole lot of derivatives. Um, so that is the point to worry about. And so far they've poured enough liquidity into those Chinese banks for them to contain the situation. Uh, but the price of the collateral, the underlying value of the real estate market is not going up. Certainly something to pay attention to. Well, Andrea Stino, founder of Stino Research, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and all of your ideas. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on, Andreas. My pleasure to be here.